Ave podcast listeners, what you're about to hear is a recording from our live 200th episode on Cleopatra and Antony. It was recorded on October the 4th at Acme Studios in Melbourne. Thanks to everyone who came along, to those who helped organise it and make it possible at both La Trobe University and Acme, and for our esteemed guests who introduced the event, Professor Nick Bisley, Vice-Chancellor John Dewar, and the Minister for Education, Jason Clare. While I'm at it and marking the occasion, I'd just like to thank my regular long-time co-hosts, Rhiannon Evans and Kaylin Davenport, and all of those who have appeared over the years, for your knowledge, good humour and patience. And finally... Thanks to all you listeners. Emperors of Rome would not have made it this far and would not be what it is today without the outpouring of support and encouragement we've had over the years, and it's meant everything. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard and what is yet to come. And on that note, here's the show. Oh, and a fair warning, this gets a bit loud and dramatic at the start. We ready? Yep. I'm going to go big. Friends, Romans, Minister, Vice-Chancellor, Countrymen, Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. This is episode CC, Cleopatra and Antony. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today, well, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, who is with me today. I first met Rhiannon walking through the grounds of the Roman Forum, praying at the Temple of Vesta to guide her hands to the lost letters of Agrippina. Later, she impressed me still by braving a horde of Nazis to retrieve the fabled sword of Caesar. Over the years, she has answered many a question on Roman history, and I have more to ask still on the turbulent and tragic story of Cleopatra and Antony. Prepare to be educated and ideally entertained. I give to you the progeny of Pliny, the legacy of Livy. Please put your hands together for, but do not establish eye contact with, (laughs) Rhiannon Evans. I had no idea where you were going with that. It gets bigger each time, have you noticed? I'm glad you didn't show me beforehand. Hordes of Nazis now. (laughs) Now, I apologise for um, up-togering the first row. (laughs) So uh, tonight we're talking about uh, the story of Cleopatra and Antony, and those who have listened along uh, for this year, uh, hopefully you're a bit up to speed, and if you haven't been listening along for this year. Well, uh, you've, you've made a wrong turn somewhere on the way to, to Acme Studios. Where we've uh, talked about previously in Emperors of Rome has taken us uh, through what we call the Liberators' War, in which after the death of Caesar, uh, Octavian, Antony and Lepidus uh, kind of divvied up the empire amongst themselves, uh, fought the Republicans, uh, destroyed the Republican army slash resistance, the people who assassinated Julius Caesar. And we now have our tale brought up to the point of, uh, luckily for our 200th episode, that was well-planned, Cleopatra and Antony. Indeed. Is that about right? Footnote, 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 here we are. (laughs) We're in 41 BCE. 41 BCE. Julius Caesar was assassinated three years previously, 
and we've seen the rise of the young Octavian, who is Caesar's heir. And when we say young, we're talking about early 20s here, aren't yeah. we? Yes, yeah, so he's born in 63. That's like half my age. That's that ludicrously is, That young. is my student's age. Okay. Imagine them being in charge of the Roman Empire. They might make a good job of it, actually. <laughs> and uh, Caesar's general, Mark Antony, uh, have, have come to power together and have a rather uneasy alliance. So uh, if you can, the other major player of this is Cleopatra. So introduced us to who she is and what relationship did she and Egypt have with the Roman Empire? So she's Cleopatra VII. She's the queen of Egypt. And not only is she the queen of Egypt, she is sole queen of Egypt, which is pretty rare for what we call Hellenistic queens, so queens in the Greek world, to reign on their own. But she does it for, she does it for 10 years, approximately. You, you could say up to 20 years, because at times she rules with her younger brothers, but I don't think they get much of a look in. So she's the queen of Egypt. She's in this very powerful position. She's the last of the Ptolemies, so a Greek dynasty. She's 28 years old uh, at this point, and she already has a son by Julius Caesar who's called Caesarian. Technically Ptolemy, but let's not call him that because there are too many Ptolemies. Mm. So she's uh, seen as an asset to the Roman Empire. And while Octavian and Antony aren't in all-out war at the moment, there's a bit of an uncomfortable, uneasy alliance between them. And Cleopatra is somebody who could help them out. I mean, Egypt is really wealthy. It's, it's very fertile, so there's a lot of grain, a lot of forests. Um, and she's also got an, a navy, and she's got four legions that Caesar handily left there. So she's got lots of stuff that they want. So the word asset sounds a bit hard, but you're right. We're going to take a lot of the romanticism away tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> she's also seen as quite provocative in Rome because after Caesar is murdered, she's in Rome at that point. He's brought her to Rome and she doesn't leave. And you'd think maybe that would be a good thing to do when her ally stroke lover has been murdered. But no, she sticks around and Cicero gets very annoyed about that. He's not happy that she's still installed in Rome. And people have sort of wondered why does she stay there? And one of the reasons could be that she's hoping that Caesar's will actually identifies her son as an heir, that it recognizes him, and it doesn't. So she does leave eventually, but it takes some time. And she needs to maintain that relationship with Rome to solidify her position. So they're kind of all playing power politics. Not really a big surprise in the Roman Empire, but at this time when the base of power is shifting around, she needs to size up who's in charge. So while Octavian and Antony are still fighting against Brutus and Cassius, there are questions over, you know, will she go with the Republicans or will she go with the heirs of Caesar? It's always more likely she'll go with the, the friends and heirs of Caesar, but she's probably thinking of this pragmatically at that time. So there's a little bit of doubt over whether her natural fit is with Octavian and Antony, eventually Octavian or Antony, mm. or with, with the others. So they're all kind of courting her. Yeah, yeah. It gets to the point, though, when uh, after the uh, civil war where the Republicans uh, meet their end and Antony vaguely gets the east, Octavian stays in Italy and gets that kind of area and um, a guy named Lepidus is in Africa. Uh, and at that point, Antony kind of sees Cleopatra as somebody very useful to him. Cleopatra probably sees Antony as the same. Yeah, he's sort of the most powerful person in the Roman world at that time. I think it'd be very easy to write off Octavian, even though he's Caesar's heir. 
I think she would see Antony as a good potential ally. Nevertheless, there seems to be a lot of power play going on between them, which I think is kind of written, especially by one of our sources, Plutarch. So I'll be reading out a few Plutarch quotes. And he's the one who kind of draws this as the grand romance, the obsession. And he has them when... Antony first calls her, he tells her to come to Tarsus in modern Turkey, and she just doesn't do anything. She just waits. She ghosts him. She, she does, yeah. I mean, she's a queen. Why would she go to somebody who's just a Roman magistrate? Mm. So she waits around, I guess you could say, playing hard to get, and eventually one of Antony's allies, who's called Quintus Delius, comes to ask her personally to come. Quintus Delius, by the way, was a historian of this period. He wrote a history. We've lost it. It'd be really interesting to have it. Although he survived by changing sides all the time, so he might have given us Octavian's view in the end. So he asks her to come, and clearly it looks like she wants to be revered and honoured, and when that happens, she will go. Yeah, but I th- some, she wants a big deal made. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. She's a queen. But I think she was always going to go Mm. uh, because she has to explain to Antony why there were questions over her loyalty. Maybe she would have made an alliance with Cassius. You know, she has to say, no, 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 I was always sending my fleet to you. It didn't get there in time, sorry. Those kinds of things. So it's set up from the start as a grand love affair. But at this point, I'm sorry, it is just tactical sense on both sides. Mm. It absolutely makes sense for them to come to an agreement. But Antony also has the leverage of uh, replacing her if it comes to that as well. And she's very, got to be very aware of that, that she has a sister, mm. Arsinue, who is always disputing her as the ruler of Rome, oh. ruler, of, Ro- ruler of, Egypt. of Egypt. Don't correct me, ruler of Egypt. <laughs> Anyone who knows anything about the Ptolemaic period in Egypt, it's A, quite incestuous, and B, dangerous. Um, and I think would really give the the imperial family that's going to come a run for its money. So they're always getting rid of each other, and um, that will eventually happen to Arsinui. But at that point, there are two sisters. Because Antony is the most powerful Roman, and indeed, at this point, he is going round the East installing leaders, and will continue to do that. And it's kind of his right, or the Romans see it as his right. He's a triumvir, all right, one of the gang of three with Octavian and Lepidus, and they have kind of unlimited power. So he's going off to Cappadocia in the east and saying, you're going to be king here. All right, I'm going to put this royal family in here. And Cleopatra can see this, so she knows it could happen to her too. So it's in her interests to make sure that she is on a firm footing with uh, Antony. All right, so she goes to uh, Tarsus to meet with Antony. And we've got an account here from Plutarch, don't we? And you've got a big old quote in the notes, so I'm going to let you read that. (laughs) Okay, so what we get from Plutarch, I'm going to preface this by saying it's all very theatrical, it's all highly romanticised, and I know we want to believe the romantic myth, but I think it is a myth. But it's great anyway, so let's read it. Though she received many letters of summons, both from Antony himself and from his friends, she so despised and ridiculed him that she sailed up the river Kidnus in a barge with a gilded deck. So no expense spared. It had purple sails, its rowers urging it on with silver oars, because you need silver oars, uh, to the sound of a flute blended with pipes and lutes. She herself reclined beneath a canopy sparkled with gold, adorned like Venus in a painting, while boys dressed as Cupid stood on either side and fanned her. 
there's probably a theory that there was a painting, because Plutarch says, like in a painting. But you can imagine, she's dressed herself up as Venus. She's dressed herself up as the goddess of love. And she's got this whole theatrical scenario going on. A, she's made divine, and of course she is regarded as a goddess in Egypt. And she's made herself like the goddess who is the patroness, the founder goddess of Rome, who, by the way, not just Julius Caesar, but Antony's family also drew their lineage from Venus. So that could be, it could be a compliment to Antony, I guess. But also, it's, it's really kind of bigging up her part, isn't it? Antony then invites her to dinner, but she insists on hosting on her very ship. She can host dinner right there and then. And at this point, I should say, Plutarch is very keen to show us Antony as a man who's instantly under the thumb, right? But take it with a pinch of salt, but enjoy it anyway. Antony obeyed at once, is a quote, and he went. He found there a preparation that beggared description, but was amazed at the multitude of lights. There's lights everywhere on this boat. And I think Plutarch's trying to give us this impression of this Roman who's he's this hardened kind of politician and, and uh, kind of military guy. And he's not used to seeing all of this luxury, which probably isn't true. But there's definitely this opposition being set up between she's the sophisticated, wealthy, extravagant one. And he's just, he's been on campaign most of the 50s, which I guess is true. It's, it's probably a touch of the exotic as well, I imagine. Very much so. This is uh, luxury, but it's a different sort than the one he's seen. So shock and awe, as in awe, but he tries to one-up her. He does. So the next night he um, asks her to come to dinner, but he's unsuccessful in kind of upping the ante on the extravagance. So he can never kind of beat her extravagance. And this is both seen as, isn't Egypt this wonderful exotic place of wonder and luxury? And also, why is Antony trying to do this from the Roman point of view? All right, He should be out there conquering the East, and instead he's trying, to, he's trying to impress Cleopatra. So there's a lot of dissing Antony going on. That's the, the technical phrase <laughs> in these texts. <laughs> I like how we've gone from talks of alliance and, and military help to very quickly, Antony winters with Cleopatra over 41 and 40 BCE, and here we get to see a real relationship developing between the two. So clearly he goes there for one thing, but he sees something else that he'd much rather have. <laughs> yeah, and look, this is, this is what all our sources tell us, and I'm always saying that we should be suspicious of our text because, and maybe I should make this a bit clearer. Wait, was this your question or mine? Because I've... <laughs> what shenanigans do these two lovebirds get up to? That's definitely your question. <laughs> <laughs> I would never say that. <laughs> we can talk about the shenanigans, but I was going to make an important so point Sorry. about primary sources. <laughs> okay, that's okay. There's editing. Go. <laughs> all the primary sources are written in the wake of Octavian winning. Another spoiler, all right? He's going to defeat both of these people. There's going to be a big battle, and they will both be defeated really badly and will die. So they don't get to write anything that comes next. We don't have very many Egyptian sources. We kind of have to read between the lines. So we're dependent on sources that come out of the version of this that Octavian writes and approves. You know, he rules over a time of extreme censorship. So what is actually there by the time Plutarch's writing, and Plutarch wants to write something very moralistic anyway, is pretty limited. So what we get, again, is this, oh, look, here's Antony partying for a year and a half. He's on holiday. At the same time as I want to say we shouldn't just believe all of this 
great Roman general thrown into decline because he's obsessed with this gorgeous exotic woman. I think he probably was having a holiday at this point. Yeah, it's the most inopportune time to do it though, really. Well, I mean, yeah, back in Italy, his Mm. wife and his brother are prosecuting a war, apparently on his behalf. So this is the Perusine War that Fulvia, his wife, she's actually getting out of the usual role of a Roman woman, getting troops together, and they're going and fighting Antony and his allies. And meanwhile, he's hanging out with Cleopatra, forming an alliance, but still... (laughs) Yeah, alliance. So, um, shenanigans. You want the shenanigans. Okay, again, it's from Plutarch. I will say, not the most reliable source. Plutarch says that Antony's going out at night and picking fights. I would say that's something that's attributed to Nero. So I wonder whether this is just one of those things you say that rulers who are a bit off the rails do. They go and pretend to be ordinary people Mm. and go out on the lash, I suppose. Um, He's also just peering into people's houses. I think that one's actually with Cleopatra, seeing what ordinary people do, or maybe. And he's having these weird fishing battles with Cleopatra. And again, it's set up as this kind of competition between them. He wants to look like a good fisherman, so he gets a fisherman to go down under the water and attach a fish to his rod so he can pull it up. Cleopatra is not fooled at all. So she then, and this is a quote from good old Plutarch, ordered one of her own attendants to get ahead of him by swimming down and fastening a salted pontic heron, very specific, onto the hooks. Obviously not one you can catch because it's already been preserved, treated. Antony thought he had caught something and pulled it up. I feel like that's a metaphor for the way Plutarch thinks of Antony. It's like he thinks he's doing well, but it's all going to go wrong. There was great laughter, and Cleopatra said, Imperator, hand over your rod to the fishermen of Pharos and Canopus. Your sport is the hunting of cities, realms, and continents. So, you know, go out there and conquer, not just this trivial stuff. And I have to say, Antony, if we put any credence into the way he's characterized here, he laughs along with it. So he is kind of jovial, and despite the fact that I don't really believe a lot of this narrative, they do sound quite fun. (laughs) 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 They sound like they're having a good jovial time together, and, you know, it's a fun couple. Yeah, sure, whatever. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) And Antony's really popular in Alexandria, too, partly because he'd been instrumental in getting Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy XII, put back in charge, because, you know, he'd been thrown out various times. Largely, it's at least cast as seeing them as these very jovial rulers. And they actually get this name, long Greek word, mimetobioi. So art means not, mimeto means uh, copying, and bioi is life, you can't copy this life. They're the inimitable livers, not the liver in your body, but living. (laughs) And this has a kind of association with Dionysus, the god of wine and theatre and, you know, playing other parts theatricality. It's something that Antony plays up to because Dionysus is kind of his guardian god in the same way as Apollo will be Octavians uh, and Cleopatra associates herself with Isis, an Egyptian god. And it's something that Octavian will absolutely use against him. Oh, he's just this drunkard, just out there enjoying himself. Look, Dionysus, like the god of misrule, whereas I've got Apollo and reason. I guess if he'd won, he could have spun it in a different way. But at the moment, it almost feels like he's playing into this, this so propaganda. Th- there's quite a lot of these stories that Plutarch's telling. Is, is, 
Is the idea that we are shocked by this as an audience or impressed by the lavish nature of it all? I think we get a bit of both. I mean, I feel like it's still possible to do that if you think about TV or movies to... I mean, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I know you do. And I imagine there's sort of lavishness at times there, but you also enjoy how appalling the characters are. I think there's a bit of that in Plutarch mm. that we can sort of enjoy feeling superior while we get to see how the other half live and think, oh, well, you know, they're just being trivial, they're just being extravagant, time wasters. You can put yourself up on a, a pedestal above them while enjoying seeing all of this extravagance mm, mm. that you're never going to live through. All right, so Plutarch says that his grandfather knew someone who knew the cook. I mean, already, it's like third hand. And the cook got chatting with him and said, oh my God, you're doing eight wild boar. And boar is like, it's an extravagant dish anyway. How many guests are coming? And he says, oh, there's only 12. That's far too much food. But you never know with Anthony. He wants food ready when he says it's got to be there. And he might say, I want the boar now. Oh, no, I want a cup of wine, and you've prepared the boar. I was thinking earlier, it's like a sushi train of food that has to be ready for him. So, again, this idea that there's unlimited extravagance, and also they're kind of demanding. So I'm going back on my previous, they were fun. If this is true, it's probably a nightmare to deal with, isn't it? that they just need this, this very extravagant food ready at any moment. It's a nightmare for the kitchen and the servants. Absolutely. You need to clean up after all of this. <laughs> but then again, good doggy bag, I imagine. <laughs> so, yes, rivals? Oh, rivals. Yeah, so sort of back to the more serious stuff. So I kind of intimated earlier that Arsinoe, the sister of Cleopatra, is the possible rival for Queen of Egypt. They don't really get on. Well, next, she just gets Antony to get rid of her. She's dragged out of the temple of Artemis at Ephesus, where she's taken sanctuary. So this is mean and killed. I think sometimes, I hope I don't present this, but sometimes I present Octavian as the incredibly ruthless one out of all of this, but they're all ruthless. Mm. Like This is really awful stuff. And Antony is now... He's depicted as doing her bidding, and to a certain extent he is. He's doing the thing that is politically advantageous for Cleopatra. So it gets to spring of 40 BCE, and this is uh, normally the time when Romans don't make war in winter, but when it's slightly sunnier, it is the season for war. So off goes Antony, leaves Egypt finally after a year and a half, mm. but he's left behind a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going off even further east. Yeah, Cleopatra gives birth to twins. Unlike Caesarian, the son of Julius Caesar, we think, although Roman sources tell us, oh, well, probably, well, maybe not, Antony does acknowledge these children as his, which is really important in the Roman world. They're not legitimate unless the father acknowledges it. He doesn't hang around to meet them, though. No. He's gone. He's gone off east to fight the Parthians to start that campaign, that never-ending, we're going to do this campaign against the Parthians. So these twins, a girl and a boy, we have Cleopatra and Alexander, which is quite an unusual name for a Ptolemaic, you know, somebody from that dynasty. But she's going back to the kind of forefather, even before the Ptolemies, to Alexander the Great, undoubtedly. Mm. And later on, they get nicknames. We think it's a bit later. These kind of celestial forces, they get named after the moon and the sun. So we get Cleopatra Selene, the moon, and Alexander Helios, the sun, which I think is meant to give us this impression that the Ptolemaic dynasty, this is 
part of the future of the dynasty, and they kind of rule the universe, the day and the night, the heavens. This is making them look really powerful. So it's a statement, statement mm. name. It's a statement, though, that just the fact that he's acknowledging them. Yeah. And it's quite notable that he's leaving children all over the Mediterranean at this point. <laughs> You've got quite a few back in Italy, it's true. And, and some in Greece, depending on where they are at the time. Yeah. He's, he's done a big victory lap of the empire. <laughs> we don't actually know how many children Anthony had. <laughs> By acknowledging them, though, is it's possible that he's seeing what he's got with Cleopatra as an, an ongoing relationship. This is something that's established for him. It's really tough to say, you know, because... Yeah. Well, sorry, in the meantime, married yes. Octavia. Yeah, sure. okay. So Fulvia, who was prosecuting that war for him, has died, yeah. apparently by natural causes, very quickly after the war in 40. Almost immediately, Antony is married off to his mate in the triumvirate, Octavian's sister, Octavia, and they produced two girls very quickly. This is what I mean by the victory lap. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> I wondered what you were referring to. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't see Cleopatra for another three years. So look, your guess is as good as mine, really, as to what is going on there. So Plutarch kind of says, oh, he never forgot about Cleopatra. He was always thinking about her, you know. Octavia was this very good woman who might have pulled him back into good Roman ways, but he was always drawn back to the East, and he, you know, eventually in 37 he's going to get back into her orbit, which Plutarch knows, hence he can talk about it with the benefit of hindsight. What Mark Antony thought he was doing at the time in 40 BCE, we do not know. He mm. may well have regarded, okay, I've made this alliance with Cleopatra, and I know we concentrate on the children and the affair, but for both of them, it was probably far more, Rome will now support Egypt. I've got Mark Antony there assuring me of that. And Mark Antony knows when he goes to Parthia, he's going to need supplies, he's going to need money, and she will provide that. So it's a quid pro quo. And the children he has recognised, which you're right, is very rare for a Roman to recognise offspring by a non-Roman. This is a kind of a, a way of bonding, sealing the deal. Very much as the marriage to Octavia and the children there are doing the same thing. It's a very different sort of business contract if you're sealing <laughs> the deal that way. Uh, so Cleopatra now has a few years, I've put it as a few years breathing room, like yeah, she I noticed suffocated that. By, uh, by Anthony. I, I wondered, what did you think that she just needed time off from all of this party? Honestly, I don't know. I've been very flippant with my questions here, haven't I? Uh, and now we get some sort of indications that she's a, a true ruler with true power, acting independently of Antony. She is. She is now very much, because she knows she's got that backing from Rome, she is ruling in her own right in a much more confident way, I think. She is now clearly recognised as the regional power, just as Rome is the power in the Mediterranean. She kind of gets to deal in local conflict. So when conflict brings, breaks out in Judea, where there is always conflict, Herod comes to her to ask her for help, which she doesn't give him. But that's kind of his first port of call, which is a sign of just how Cleopatra is being recognized as not only this very unusual soul-ruling queen, which has rarely happened before, but also someone who can supply you with help in a civil war, in a conflict. Her authority could put Herod back on the throne. And she welcomes him in. I think what she's doing here, reading between the lines, is trying to keep him there. She clearly wants to exert power over Judea, but 
he doesn't stick around because she is not going to help him go back and win that civil war. He goes to Octavian and Antony and says, well, you know, if Cleopatra won't do it, then I'll go a bit further afield. And they do help him and they install him, primarily Antony, as the ruler of Judea. Okay, so it gets to 37 BCE when they meet again. And this is when Antony is over in Parthia. So I think, by the way, this is a real sign of the way our sources are that... That three-year period, we know so little about what was going oh, on Oh, yeah, Cleopatra. that was it. That was it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just like the three years of vacuum apart from we know a bit of, about Herod because Judea is important. I don't think we know that because, look, Cleopatra's getting to do local kind of politicking. Yeah, but that's because Appian at that moment is, you know, focusing on Sextus Pompey and what's happening over in there in Sicily. And all of this, that's Cleopatra, that's not Roman stuff, it's yeah. not important. So we're basically working from secondary sources and that kind of thing to put a little bit of detail in there. Yeah, I mean, she's got young children, I guess. I mean, she's a queen. I'm sure she's got plenty of help. There is a vacuum. And of course, our other big source that I've been quoting a lot is Plutarch. And he's writing a biography. And it's a biography of Mark Antony. It's not a biography of Cleopatra. There mm. are no biographies of women. Um, but so having said that, Mark Antony is painted as somebody who's obsessed he is, yes, yeah, as we've established. It's almost like a sickness, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the way Plutarch... And, of course, well, we'll talk a bit more about this perhaps later, but Plutarch fits directly into Shakespeare and, therefore, I think, further on into our conception of both of them. Mm. So she goes to... Where's she going towards? Towards Parthia. He's so, <laughs> so again, <waging> battle. <laughs> again, Antony asks her to join him. He just seems to spend his time saying, come over here, come to Tarsus. This time, come to Syria. And this time, he knows what to do, though. He sends one of his aides. He doesn't just send a letter with, with a slave and asks Cleopatra to join him. She gets there. She gets to Antioch in late 37 BCE. And she brings the, th the three-year-old twins with her. They've never met their dad. They get to meet him for the first time. And this might be when they get those surnames, Sun and Moon. Plutarch tells us at this time that, you know, that's when he says this, this passion, which had been, I think he says, slumbering for a long time, his passion for Cleopatra flares up again. So it's like this kind of unquenchable flame. As she draws nearer to Syria, he gets more and more obsessed and he spurns nobler counsels. So all those wise people who are telling him, don't get into Cleopatra's orbit. You're married to this good woman. He ignores them all. <laughs> it's very much the way it's presented here. But again, I would say there are really good strategic reasons for them to work together. I know this is boring. I keep saying tactical and strategic, but I think it probably is what's going on. As I've intimated already, Antony needs resources for Parthia. She's got them. She's got supplies. You know, if you've read any Julius Caesar, you've got to feed that army. And she's got a lot of corn. She's got a lot of wheat there that she can supply. She can give him armies even if necessary and certainly money. On the other hand, Cleopatra's in this, is Herod a danger in Judea? Um, and so she knows if she's got Antony on side, she can keep that in place. She can keep Herod in his place as she sees it. And what Antony does in this continual prid quo, prid, uh, quid pro quo, I can't say it, is... Uh, do you want me to correct your pronunciation? Yeah, please do. <laughs> correct my Latin. <laughs> if you dare. <laughs> that he, he gives her some of the land that's been taken away from Egypt. She actually gets territory back. She seems to get a lot out of this and comes out very well. Eventually, she'll get even more. But yeah, yeah she, she gets Cyprus. Actually, Caesar had already given her Cyprus back, but it seems to be taken away again because Antony restores it again. So there's obviously land just going back and forth, this poor island of Cyprus. 
And he now gives her bits of Arabia, bits of Syria, bits of Phoenicia, which is modern Lebanon, Palestine, Crete, not all of it, kind of key cities in a lot of them, Crete, Cyrene in North Africa. So these are important ports. And that's probably important in itself, because that means she can get him stuff from those places. So I don't think even that is uh, utterly selfless. Mm. So she can trade for him and get things in for him. And he needs those resources for the war in Parthia. But I do think we need to see this in that bigger picture I pointed out earlier, which is he's consolidating kingdoms in the East in this really pragmatic way. Because perhaps he's thinking back to the war with Brutus and Cassius, where they were able to get local kings on side. And he wants bigger kingdoms, all right? It's, it sounds like sort of companies consolidating or something. If he can have these bigger kingdoms that are on side and really rationalize them, then it's less danger to him. So I think that's the main reason he's doing it. It's not so much handing things to Cleopatra. It's if Cleopatra's got more control here, then I don't need to worry about that place. They'll stay on side for me. Mm. And in effect, in all of this, these people still answer to Rome. It's a little bit more local bureaucracy under the Ptolemaic umbrella. But in the end, I think they all know that Rome is the power. It's often cast as he's giving things away, and it, we'll, we'll see a much bigger version of that. But I don't think he really is. He's placing things strategically. All right, so it's not just, oh, it's Cleopatra, I've got to give her stuff because she's so wonderful and I'm obsessed with her. Oh, I did want to talk about coinage. Is that okay? The coinage, Yes. Uh, this is where she begins a new Ptolemaic dynasty. Yeah. Yeah. So I think she then casts this as this is the Ptolemies writ large. She's kind of harking back to the early days of the Ptolemies before Egypt lost all of that power and territory. And she seems particularly to want to hark back to Ptolemy II back in the 300s or early um, third century. At this point, she starts to double date her coinage, which is a very unusual thing to do. So it's very common to date coinage by, you know, it's the 16th year of someone's reign or the 12th time that they're consul or something like that for Rome. It's her 16th year as a ruler, but she starts putting year 16 and year one. So that's a marker of this is now the new era. This is me in charge, as it were, and this is the start of the Ptolemies, uh, their kind of grand accession back to power. It's, which is a little bit sad knowing what's coming. But yeah, it's, it's year one starting now in 37. We get to the point, I think, where Antony is asking too much and Antony is in a rush to achieve anything. That's how it's usually read. He wants to get to Parthia and finish off Parthia. Now, Parthia is this constant bugbear for the Romans. So, it, I mean, he should know it's the kind of graveyard for the Romans as it becomes. So back in 53, Crassus previous triumvirate with Julius Caesar and Pompey, had been there to kind of, you know, finally I will get rid of the Parthian threat in the east, and that was a huge disaster, and he was killed in the most appalling way by having molten gold thrown down his throat. So that's kind of there in the background. We need to get Parthia. <laughs> that's, that's the benchmark. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's usually cast as Antony wants to get this over with quickly. And Plutarch says it's because he's dying to get back to Cleopatra. He says it'll be done in a year, which I think must be nonsense because it takes months to get to Parthia. And Julius Caesar had been going to go and conquer Parthia, or at least have a Parthian campaign when he was killed. And he had put aside, just in his calendar, a mark off three years for that. So that seems more reasonable if you're mm. going to conquer Parthia, and it's going to take a while. 
I mean, there's, there's Cleopatra to rush back to, but there's also young Octavian, who you don't want to leave to his own devices too much. Well, you say that, but Antony has spent a long time leaving, leaving Octavian his to devices. his own devices. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I guess there is, there is a, a model for this in that, I mean, I know it didn't end well, but Julius Caesar spent eight years in Gaul and he just had people back in Rome keeping his political life alive, as it were. You don't have to be there at mm. this point. I think you just, you need a tame tribune or something like that. You need people who can manipulate stuff in Rome for you, but you also need to have the honour that comes with prosecuting a big war. All right, and Octavian's obviously never been able to do this. He was there when Brutus and Cassius were defeated, but he's too young to have this background, and Antony's already got it, and he can get something even bigger. He can get revenge for the Romans and what they did to Crassus. He can carry out the war that Julius Caesar was going to carry out. So this is a great opportunity for him, and I don't think he's thinking he'll be back in a year. Uh, so we've got a, another child being born in 36 BCE. This is Ptolemy Philadelphus. Philadelphus. So close, so close. But Philadelphia is yeah, named yeah, yeah. after yeah, this. Sure, yeah. Well, at least Ptolemy II was called Philadelphus. So again, Cleopatra is naming one of her children after that, that great Ptolemy. You make it sound like there's yet another child, yet another one comes along. But Cleopatra, actually, I think that she was really clever about how she planned her pregnancies. I think there is planning. So if we looked at other Hellenistic queens, they're pretty much always pregnant as much as they can be, producing heirs. And we know, you know how high infant mortality was in antiquity and how many pregnancies weren't successful. So she does not have that many pregnancies. And you know, if you're thinking of her as being this woman who is having affairs with everybody. Well, as far as we know, it was only Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, and I think that's probably true. And she has pregnancies in, what, 48? She has a son to Caesar, 48, 47. She might be pregnant in 44 when Caesar dies. Cicero kind of intimates that, but she must miscarry at that point. And she's had the twins in 40, and now another pregnancy in 37. If it is four pregnancies even, that is not a lot over, uh, what, a 10-year period pretty much for a Hellenistic queen because she's got to be ruling as well. I mean, it's really dangerous. She could die through any of these pregnancies. So she's got to be very careful, but she does want to consolidate her dynasty. So I think she's ex doing exactly the right thing. This is her plan. She wants this many children, and she's clearly in charge of that. Uh, we now, I'm going to prompt you to read this quote, if okay. that's okay. Mm -hmm. got a Plutarch quote here in which uh, the role of Antony is played by the actor Richard Burton. Is this, uh, <laughs> he waited for Cleopatra? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Burton, by the way, is from uh, Port Talbot, quite close to where I was born. I, I'm, I'm yeah. well aware of this. <laughs> <laughs> Have I told you before? <laughs> no, I, I maybe read quite a lot of biographies about Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. Point. All right. Research, so legitimate research. <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> All right, I think this is how they played in the movie too. It's been a while since I've seen it. He waited for Cleopatra to come, and since she was slow in coming, he was beside himself with distress, promptly resorting to drinking and intoxication. Although he could not hold out long at table. Well, that's a bit of a diss. But in the midst of the drinking, would often rise up or spring to look out until she put into port bringing an abundance of clothing and money for his soldiers. That, that's, that's what he really wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've missed out something important here. This is on the way back. He yeah. hasn't prosecuted his campaign. It doesn't work out. 
Yeah, that, that little fact we brushed over a bit when we got excited. But he still needs to pay his soldiers. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so the campaign does not work out, and there's a, a theory, and I think it's, uh, most of our ancient sources say, say this pretty much, that he can't just go back to Rome because he's actually been sending back messages saying things are going really well. This makes me think of a sitcom. It's the mm. kind of thing people would get themselves into a mess by saying, oh, you know, we've made great advances in Parthia, and it's all lies. Because Parthia is really hard to conquer. You know, it's just really remote and hot. moving the drinks cabinet yeah. a few metres forward. <laughs> yeah. So he's kind of safer back in Alexandria, and he sort of has, some, has to have something to show for it as well. Mm. And he decides, Armenia. Armenia will do something here. He tries to set up a marriage between one of their sons and an Armenian princess. I mean, they're both kids, but for the future, that doesn't even work out. The Armenians aren't interested, so he just goes in and defeats them. And then... Hold a triumph. Then they hold a triumph. In Alexandria, you don't have triumphs outside of Rome. It's not allowed. Yeah, I can't think of any comparison, actually. I don't know. Like, All massively sketchy. Not at this period. <laughs> yeah. Be like, I don't know, installing our prime minister in oi, New Zealand oi. or something. <laughs> I'm trying to make it topical. Not in it's front of the minister. <laughs> <laughs> but He's it's taking notes. <laughs> I know. I'll, I'll be pulled out later by some men in dark suits. Um, no, it's the wrong place to have it for the Romans. It's actually interesting that, well, I think it's interesting, shortly after this, in the, I guess you'd call it the Augustan period, Octavian Augustan period, we get this massive history of Rome written by Livy. And at the end of the first five books of Livy, there's, well, it's early Rome, kind of legendary Rome at this point. But there's this big debate over, uh, you know, Rome has been conquered and burnt in very early Rome, so not much there, but it's been conquered and burned down. Should we move somewhere else? Should we move to one of those Etruscan towns? And then one of their generals comes on and says, no, 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 all of our, our families have lived here, our fathers are buried here, the temple of Jupiter is here. All this important stuff is here, this, this bond with the land of Rome itself. This is the kind of thing that Antony is now breaking with by having his triumph, that great parade that you honor the conquering general with. Uh, and you know, it's hard to get a triumph. You, can't, you don't just conquer. You've got to have this list of how many people you've killed. And it's hard, uh, it was meant to be. And Antony's just doing this for a not very big conquest, as the Romans would regard it, and in the wrong place. Is he going to move Rome to Alexandria? Well, Octavian will say that. Mm. He'll say that was the danger. And that will be part of his propaganda. You could read it as inventive. You can start having the triumph anywhere. This is all part of the Roman world. This is the kind of eastern outpost of Rome, maybe? So the way that he's acknowledging and treating his children, uh, working out marriage alliances that are clearly going to further the Egyptian empire, and the names that he's given them, and saying that this is year one, she, she's, she's got issues, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> One use the word empire. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. But Dynasty, yeah, sphere but, of influence. It feels like he's trying to make his own thing there in Egypt, trying to establish something a bit other from Rome. Yeah, I think it seems a bit other because it didn't happen. And what we get instead is Octavian then consolidating power in Italy and constantly talking about, I had Italy behind me in that war against that foreign queen who we won't name. Yeah, so this is his propaganda that I'm, I'm kind of parroting. Well, not quite, but I mean, I think it would be seen as unusual. It is very weird, but it could have become the new norm. It's just that it didn't. Mm. So I'm trying to sort of do devil's advocate reading against the grain of 
Augustan propaganda, I suppose. Actually, can I say one more thing about yeah, the yeah. triumph? Yeah. It kind of failed as well because the, Ar show. the Armenian king refused to kneel before Antony and Cleopatra. And they try and persuade him at first and then try and intimidate him, not just him, the other captives too, who are meant to be kind of, you know, bent forward in this real ignominious way. He refuses to be part of this parade, which is kind of ironic because the, then the Augustan propagandists will say that Cleopatra refused to do that because she dies before the great parade that Octavian has. Mm. But yeah, they don't get the show they want out of it. So they put on another show instead. All right, so... Let's talk about the donations of Alexandria. That's the show I was referring to. Okay. Which are acknowledgements, gifts that are given to the children mm. of Antony and Cleopatra. It's almost like distributing the land amongst them. You're the lord of this realm. And I think this is the point. This is 34 BCE. The children are all pretty young. Well, the youngest one is, what, three? Mm. Um, Great to have that much power and land at that age. But I think this is the sign that Antony really is no longer thinking that he will go back and play nice with the triumvirate. So the triumvirate was renewed in 37 for five years. It does not last five years, right? This pact with Octavian. And I think it's also the point that he basically says, I'm not really married to Octavia anymore. Not doing that anymore. Not playing that game. I'm now moving over with Cleopatra. There's a lot of debate over whether they actually get married. Um, we don't know, but Augustus Octavian represents it like that as a marriage and a disgraceful marriage. So what they do is they have this big ceremony in the gymnasium, the public space in Alexandria where they'd also held the triumph. And as you say, they grant titles and land to especially Caesarian, actually, and yeah, Caesar's yeah. son with Cleopatra. And they have this elaborate ceremony and they make Cleopatra, so Cleopatra VII, not her daughter, and Caesarian, now joint rulers of Egypt. So technically she, she becomes a joint ruler again. Also Cyprus and part of Syria. They make Alexander Helios, the king of Armenia, recently conquered, Media and Parthia, and land as far as India, which seems to be aspirational because I don't think Egypt or Rome has that land at this point. And Ptolemy, the newborn, granted the rest of Syria, Phoenicia, and Cilicia. So I don't know quite how he's going to administer these at the age of three. But, uh, but these, are, these are Alexander's old territories, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You're going as far as India. Yeah, yeah it's, de yeah, it's definitely a pointer to that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And also kind of beyond where the Romans have been previously. I think mm. there might be a part of that. Oh, I've got a quote here, not from Plutarch. I think I should read it out because it's not from Plutarch. Yeah, go on. Yep. So it's from Cassius Dio. This is why they loved Antony. Antony feasted the Alexandrians. That means he gave them food, not feasted on them. Wild boars. <laughs> probably wild boars. And in the assembly made Cleopatra and her children sit by his side. Also in the course of his address to the people, he commanded that she should be called Queen of Kings and Caesarian King of Kings. Dio lists all of the donations that we've just been through. And then Antony sent a dispatch to Rome as well to secure ratification there. So he sends off this note to Rome saying, by the way, this 13-year-old supposed son of Caesar is now king of kings and these lands are owned by these children. Can and you ratify all of this for me? Yeah. Senate. And they say no. <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly not surprised. Yeah. They would have had a good laugh. Well, probably. They refuse to recognise it. 
And of course, there's no way Octavian's going to allow this, especially the stuff about Caesarian, because Caesarian, if he really is a son of Julius Caesar, really threatens Octavian's position. Octavian is son of Caesar by adoption. But if there is a bloodline, that's a problem for Octavian. Now, this happens in the Senate, and the Senate says no. And Octavian wants all of this to be made public, presumably so that Romans will be horrified. They'll be horrified that this is happening. Um, and he can spin it against Antony. But the consuls this year are two friends of Antony. And they say, no, let's just bury that away. All right, at least for the moment, let's not let people know. So they clearly recognize that this is not good PR for Antony. They deleted all the emails off their server. <laughs> <laughs> and it does make me wonder, I mean, I've tried to read against the grain of the sources with Antony, but I don't think he's reading Rome very well anymore. Yeah, well, this comes down to the obsession, I think, that we come away with with Antony and Cleopatra, especially from the side of Antony, if I can say that. And I don't know if that's because, you know, Octavian's propaganda is very harsh on Antony. We think the worst of him. Of course, he's the one who is obsessed. But is Cleopatra, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, is she exploiting it? Well, she's getting, getting a lot. plenty in return, but so is Antony. So... Well, you could read this both ways. So this is not one of these written sources. There's a papyrus from 33 BC, so the year after the donations, which may show some people think the queen's handwriting. They get very excited about this. One word says, Ginestho, let it be so. I'd like to think it's make it so, but that's not very accurate <laughs> in Greek. And it grants tax exemptions to a man called Publius Canidius, who's a friend of Antony's. So is this Antony exploiting her to get benefits for his mates? Or is this her saying, well, I will use my power to give certain benefits to Antony and his crew, but I'm getting a lot in return, so what's it to me? I mean, I think you could read that both ways. Antony gets stuff back. It looks like she gave him some Egyptian land, which I think would be a big deal, because his daughter, Antonia, one of the many Antonias, because there's so many children, she inherits land in Egypt, and it's vast amounts of land around the Fayum, just south of Alexandria. You know, it's possible she got it some other way, but pretty likely it was through Antony. Mm. And Plutarch says that at this point, they get married. Mm, who knows? Okay. Only Plutarch says that, no one else does. Oh, really? Mm. Okay, all right. So unless there's a certificate, we're going with no Plutarch? We've, if we find that papyrus. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a certificate, Let it be so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard, hard to know. Okay. Sorry, I'm going to say don't know on that one. We leave Antony and Cleopatra now at the height of their power, and uh, we leave them for the next episode of Emperors of Rome. It is important for us to realise that the way we perceive Cleopatra is very Western-centric then, I suppose. Our historical sources are Augustan propaganda. That's who we've been mostly using here. So there's an entire dimension of Cleopatra that we're missing out on. I mean, I think it's kind of said really well by those three years where Antony was away. We had a couple of footnotes and that's it. Yeah, we haven't got much from our written sources. And we do know certain things. We know she was popular with the Egyptians, as far as we can tell. We know that she was not only popular with the Greek kind of overlords in Egypt, because remember, Egypt is ruled by a Greek monarchy, a kind of Greek aristocracy, and the vast majority of the people are ethnically quite distinct. But we know that Cleopatra was the first of the Ptolemies to learn Egyptian, so she's at least interested in their language. 
and that she got involved with providing for them. So she seems to be more interested than other Ptolemies in infrastructure. I know it sounds boring, but it's important. She builds canals to get water to you know, settlements. She starts producing coins that show her on, on the um, obverse and on the reverse double cornucopia, which is her saying, look, time of fertility, plenty. And we know she gave money and donations when there were shortages of food. So I don't think that's just propaganda on her part. She was worshipped as a goddess there. She's kind of really assimilated to the goddess Isis, who is a goddess of fertility and a mother herself. So all of these roles kind of brought together She's in the middle of this Egyptian, Greek, Roman world and with other powers around her like Judea pretty well if Actium hadn't all gone wrong. Mm. <laughs> She's seen as a, a role model in the East. It's very different from the version of her we get from Roman sources. So in the third century CE, Queen Zenobia of Palmyra in Syria, she will cast herself as the new Cleopatra, another sole ruling queen. We also know tantalizingly little, but little bits from largely Islamic, but also Christian sources in the medieval period from the Middle East, that she was seen as an expert administrator, also um, an expert in pharmacology. So there's lots of kind of Cleopatra's potions kind of books out there. Don't know how real you want to see them as. Somebody who carried out ambitious engineering projects. We know some of this isn't true because in some versions she is given the role of having built the lighthouse at Alexandria, which had been built a long time before Cleopatra. So that's not true. She might have maintained it, I suppose. But she's seen it consistently in those Eastern sources as this good, stable ruler they never mention was she beautiful or anything about her sexuality. So there is a whole other version of Cleopatra that's not a femme fatale, but it is kind of the version that's come to us largely in the West. Mm. I blame Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> so via Shakespeare, you'd attribute most of what we know now. Actually, I blame Plutarch. Yeah. Because Shakespeare ruled, used Plutarch. Yeah, as his it was just a, uh, a creative interpretation of... <laughs> he had Plutarch under his pillow, I think, for most of that time, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely, for yeah. all the Roman plays. We've got this version of Cleopatra kind of really solidified in paintings and movies, I think. I mean, mm. You mentioned Liz Taylor, but that's just one of a long line of films about Cleopatra, going back to the silent era. And I think she's always depicted as bathing in ass's milk. So you can get that scene where she's cut off here, but you can go, oh, it's a little bit, a little bit a racy. Bit, a little bit risky. Yeah. So there's always that side of her kind of played up, isn't there, in this, this myth that's been created around Cleopatra as this exotic. And even Plut Plutarch does comment on that. He says she wasn't beautiful. He never says that Antony wasn't handsome. So <laughs> he's kind of playing into this. Like, we have to talk about her appearance. So yeah, I blame Plutarch for a lot. <laughs> I could go back and have a word with him. So many of your podcasts end with, I blame Plutarch so much. <laughs> I'm really grateful we've got him, of course, yes, as of a course. source. Yes. But I think we have to read him very carefully, very shrewdly. Mm. All right, so that's uh, the, the end of our material. Uh, we might take a couple of questions. Do we have a, a roving mic somewhere? Any questions at all about Antony and Cleopatra? We have one over there. Ave. Did Cleopatra have like, much influence in the Roman Empire? Back at the seat of power in Rome? Well, if you read people like Cicero, it's mostly negative influence because he can't stand her. I think she did, and that's why we get those negative sources. It's fear of the influence that she might have, solely because Egypt 
It's not so much about Cleopatra, unfortunately, except that she manages to stabilize Egypt. And Egypt is this powerhouse of supplies, all right, to be very boring about so it. So she was influential because she had Egypt and because Egypt was wealthy and yep. plenty of resources. Yeah, but and also there's kind of this authority that comes with Egypt having all of that antiquity, all right, being even older than Greek culture. So I think that's important too, and she plays into that. Mm. So she casts herself as a pharaoh. I mentioned that as well as a Greek queen. So I think on lots of levels, she's seen as powerful and therefore dangerous by Octavian. It's quite telling that when he does conquer Antony and Cleopatra and therefore Egypt, he kind of makes it a private province, like it's his little garden. He never sends any senator there. Senators are not allowed to enter Egypt under Octavian. No governors at all either. No. Yeah. Only equestrians from the next level can go and be his ambassador there, his second in command. Yeah, pretty much um, the idea is that nobody can go there and monopolize any power and, you know, set them up as their own Mark Antony. Use it as a springboard for taking out Octavian. So, yeah, I think she was very powerful in Rome, and that's what makes her so dangerous to them. They talk about her largely as this malign force. Over here. Ave. Ave. I'm just curious to know that um, how Octavian was seen by the Egyptians before and mm. after his little, I'd say, quarrel with Anthony and Cleopatra. <laughs> Do we have any inscriptions or comments or even just scribbles on the wall of how he was seen mm. by the Egyptians? We need some graffiti, but I don't think we have any. No, we've got all the official stuff. There's mass murder in Alexandria by Octavian. So he would have been very unpopular, but we don't have their version of that. I mean, Caesarian is not going to last long, I'm sorry. So that, that fails on Cleopatra's part. She doesn't protect at least that child. The others are taken care of. But yes, there is, there's going to be slaughter in Egypt of anybody associated with that dynasty. There was one over here. Are they? I have a personal question, please. Ooh. The minister spoke to his love of history. I was wondering how each of you were bitten by the history bug. Ooh. Oh, it's a long, long story. I'll keep it short. It was kind of a circuitous route through doing languages and doing Latin. And initially, I was more in interested in the literary side of Rome. But it was always Rome for me, even though as a classicist, you learn ancient Greek too. I, why was I more interested in Rome? God, it's hard to remember. I think that it was all the paradoxes of, and often cast as so militaristic, you know, this, this vast military force. But also, we read all this love poetry. So even though I've been trying to cast aside the romantic stuff here, there is poetry you could write in a Valentine's card today by Catullus, if you choose carefully. Uh, <laughs> and the stuff you could insult people with as well. That's quite fun. So I think it was these contrasts that I couldn't quite weigh up in my mind. And then because you're reading that literature, you know, you need to read Tacitus and Suetonius. And even before all of that, I had, in some kind of repeat of it, watched I, Claudius at a very inappropriate age. <laughs> so I, somewhere in the back of my mind, that was there. And I knew there was this brutal stuff going on. I think I was quite scarred by one of the Caligula episodes, but I made it through classics anyway. And yeah, I did become fascinated with that late Republican, early imperial period because you've got things like Cicero's letters, which are, that's like, it's like reading a novel, it's like the everyday account of what's going on in the Roman political world. But you've also got this highly rhetorical stuff in Tacitus or Plutarch's pretty rhetorical too. 
And we've got loads of information, but we've also got all these gaps. That makes it fascinating to try to read around that and to fit in what we've got from archaeological evidence. You know, we're finding new texts occasionally. So there's this kind of detective aspect to it. That was much longer than it should have been. Matt? I've got a two-part answer and a TED talk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Asterix for me was, uh, was the first one. Honestly, uh, I've got my first Asterix book from when I was four years old which was given to me by my uncle, and uh, history has stayed with me since. And uh, more directly, uh, <laughs> coming from this, this podcast, my first and only trip to Rome is in 2013, which was a year before this podcast started. So I came back from Rome and promptly started annoying Rhiannon at that point. <laughs> so I, um, I guess that, uh, what, I first met you on the the floors of the Roman Forum when you were praying to the Temple of Vesta to please guide your hand to the lost letters yeah. of Agrippina. It was actually in Humanities 3 or something, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> You're still in the same office, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think we did our first recording in my office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pre-COVID. Plenty. <laughs> yes, we're never Pliny done the Elder. Yeah, the lost episode of Emperors of Rome. Any more questions? Okay, last question up there. You've both spoken about them picking a god or a goddess as their sort of patron deity. I wonder, want to know which one you would both pick. <laughs> well, I quite like Minerva because of the wisdom thing, but then she's the patron goddess of Domitian and he's really bad. Yeah, but you can't choose who worships you. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. You know what? I've always felt a bit for Juno. I feel like she gets a really bad press as this kind of nasty wife of Jupiter who's always feeling jealous of him. But she was really respected in the Roman world as the goddess of marriage and mothers and, you know, Roman matrons. And yeah, I'm going to go for a boring answer and say Juno. So there. Okay. Uh, if I were a Roman god, I would be scrawled on the wall in Pompeii in the dodgiest establishment <laughs> you could find. <laughs> and that would be the living testimony to me. <laughs> <laughs> it may still happen. We worship Matt, but we're occasionally horizontal when we do it. <laughs> Wait, that sounds dodgy. <laughs> anyway, there is editing, and that's, I believe, a good place to end this podcast. Sorry, sorry. You came here for high culture. <laughs> <laughs> you really lowered the tone. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's at least one child here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I believe that's, uh, that's the end of the podcast. Uh, so uh, if you could all please thank Rhiannon Evans. And, and thank the man who keeps it all together, Matt. <laughs> And uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the previous 200 episodes and whatever we've got to, to come ahead of us. And you've been fantastic. Thanks for listening. That was myself and Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University. And you have been listening to the 200th episode of Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any available podcatching platform. If you can leave a review there or send us a tweet, send us a tweet as well. It would all be very appreciated. 
You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy. The podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it for the last 200 episodes of Emperors of Rome. In the next episode, we'll be hearing about the downfall of Cleopatra and Antony at the Battle of Actium. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. You have been fantastic. And thanks for listening.